2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Verse, chapter 7, verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Holiness is perfected when it is inward and outward. In Matthew 23, Jesus told the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes that they needed to cleanse first the inside of the cup so the outside could also be clean. We don't assume inward holiness. It is a prerequisite to outward. But we need to understand the application of the Holy Spirit that is in us to the way we live our lives. God bless you. I want to speak to you on our apostolic identity. Our actions and appearances, our attire, everything about us is the light of the world and we are salt to the earth. And we're to demonstrate that light to the world in every way. And it does start with an inward right heart with God. The attitudes that we have and demonstrate, the words we speak and how we speak them, how we present ourselves in our physical body and present ourselves to the world. The Apostle Peter said that we were a chosen generation, a royal generation, royal priesthood rather, excuse me, his own special people. The King James says a peculiar people that we would proclaim the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are not darkness in a light world. We are light in a very, very dark world. So when we talk about what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, we recognize that we are to be a contrast culture, light in darkness, decidedly, distinctively different by godly design. Peter said, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. In times past, you had not obtained mercy, but now God has been merciful to you. And because of that, you should consider yourself a sojourner, a pilgrim, a foreigner on planet earth, because you are going to battle against the fleshly lusts that war against your soul. And you have your conduct in this world honorable among the Gentiles, among unbelievers. So at first glance, they may think that there's something odd or weird about you. Peter says they're going to look at you and they may speak against you as an evildoer. Your light and darkness, your life convicts them of their ungodly lifestyle. And they may speak against you, but eventually in the day of visitation, they'll recognize that we were God's special people. The Apostle Peter plays this out in telling them, because you are God's special people, called to show forth the praises of Him who's called you out of darkness and into marvelous light, 
There's several lengthy passages, and I'll summarize in a sentence. He said, because of that, you are to submit to law and governmental authorities. You are to be model citizens in this world. You are to show respect to your employers and company and that generation and that day. It was to your masters. Verses 18 through 25 speak about that. And then he tells the wives in chapter 3 that they're to submit to their husbands as light in a dark world. He tells husbands that they are to understand and honor their wives. And finally, the apostle Peter speaks to everyone and says that we are to be compassionate, loving, tender-hearted. We are not to return evil for evil. We are to be the people of God who represent Jesus Christ in the world. That's who we are, called out of darkness into marvelous light. So Christianity is not limited to a doctrine, a set of teachings. It's not limited to a philosophy. It is a life. We are called to be disciples of Jesus Christ, to follow Him in every dimension of who He was and to grow up into Him in all things, to be like Jesus, to grow into the stature and the fullness of Christ. Now, it is one thing to be Spirit-filled. It is another thing to be Spirit-led. This past Sunday was Pentecost Sunday, and I preached about Pentecost. It was the birthday of the church. But we are to not just be Spirit-filled, but we're to be Spirit-led. And the Spirit is not going to lead you where the Word of God cannot sanction your behavior. When the Spirit leads you, primarily it's going to lead you to obey the Bible. It's not going to lead you to disobey the Bible or to disregard the Bible. The Spirit in you is the sword of the Spirit. That Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And the Spirit applies that sword as needed. Now last week, uh, we spoke about gender distinction. So I'm going to do a little review. I knew I would have crowd students, and I'm going to segue into some other teaching, but I'm going to do a little review. Deuteronomy 22.5. Now, just because some of you, this is a jump from where I just was to where I am now, I laid a foundation all the way back to Genesis that he made the male and female. And I've spent the better part of two weeks, and they're all archived. These two messages are archived. You can go back to show through the scriptures that this is not some peripheral doctrine. This is central to being a follower of Jesus, that we are to have a distinction from the world. And that distinction plays out in whether you are male or male. Or female. And I talked about roles and sexuality and all of that last week. Deuteronomy 22.5, New King James Version. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord. We know that God made us distinctly different. Male Female, two genders, that's all. 
He did not make three. It would not work for the continuation of what God created. So we know from this passage that the clothing of men, the clothing of women, is to identify them according to their gender, to be distinct, and to not cross-dress. Now, this passage says that those who do so are an abomination to the Lord. There are some people that say, well, there's other scriptures that talk about abominations, but those are abominations to us, like eating things that would have violated the ceremonial law. But this particular prohibition in the Bible has to do with something that is detestable to God Himself. It's not just an abomination to you. It won't just harm your body. It is detestable to God Himself. Idolatry, witchcraft, murder, and lying are also detestable to God. This is what the Bible teaches very, very clearly, and it means that it is disgusting to God. Now, we've talked about modesty a little bit and gender distinction, and what we should wear should be appropriate to our gender. God is against the blurring of gender lines. He wants to keep us clearly male and female, and when we blur those lines, it does away with God's distinction and also authority and order in our lives. I'll get into this more, but this extends to the way we appear, even to our hair. 1 Corinthians is very clear about that. So I'm still reviewing just a little bit. But I said last week, and I want to say it again, I, I know when I've reviewed, believe it or not, that you know you should dress your little boys like boys and your little girls like girls and not the other way around. Your child is not a Barbie doll or a Ken doll. It's a child you are raising to be a man or a woman. So start that young and don't let them be confused about which gender they are of. Amen? And if you want your daughter to go hunting with you, I said this, buy her pink camouflage because nowadays they make it so she'll know that she's a little girl. Gender role. Men and women have different roles in a relationship. For example, I don't think I would have to spend a lot of time trying to tell the men in our church to not have babies. You are not designed to conceive and bear children. And there's not a man in here that wants that job. Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2 and 8, and he said, I would that men everywhere lift up holy hands without wrath or doubting. And then he said, likewise, in like manner also, that women would adorn themselves in modest apparel, shamefacedness, sobriety, not with elaborately broided hair, gold or pearls or costly array. He wanted men and women to be distinct. And there were some things that he needed to write to men about because they were things that men struggle with. Anger, wrath, expressive worship. And there are other things he needed to write to women about, such as vanity. And he did. And we should also address those things. Paul also to Titus said, that older women should be good examples and that they should teach younger women how they are to live their lives and how to be women. 
Proverbs 31 is a great description of a businesswoman who was first a keeper at home, as the Bible would say. So men are to accept their gender role, act and dress like men, fulfill their role. In our church, we teach that men should wear slacks, long pants, and that women should wear dresses, not bifurcated. That means split, that they should be a dress. And I just want to go on record, in case there's any men who are struggling with this tonight, I want to just be very clear that I do not believe that you men should wear dresses. I know this is not 105 AD, this is 2017. And so I just want to, I want to come down really hard on this tonight to tell you men, if you are, stop, quit wearing dresses. That is not masculine apparel. Now, everybody, not everybody, but most everybody's kind of nervously laughing right now because by and large, we're okay with that. We're okay with the idea that our men don't wear dresses. But in our culture, because of changes that took place several decades ago, and I, for the sake of time, cut the history out of my notes, I'll stick to the Bible, that there is a change in women's apparel and women's role. And because our culture changed, it didn't ever change the Bible. So while men in our culture, North America, typically are not struggling with wearing women's apparel because it is prevalent in our culture, women do struggle with that. And there is resistance and opposition. But while we are not here to judge outside the church, we are here to teach inside the church. If you don't understand this, or don't agree with it, or not willing to embrace it, I would like to encourage you to just hear it, and open your heart to it, and let the Lord speak to you, because regardless of what you want to try to call men's apparel and women's apparel, it is very clear in the Bible that men are to wear men's apparel, and women are to wear women's apparel, and you are not to cross-dress. When you do, it is an abomination to the Lord. Not to Atlanta West, not to the United Pentecostal Church, but to the Lord. So our ladies dress in skirts, and thankfully now their companies, apostolic ladies who have wonderful active wear, so you can run and hop and skip and jump and still be modest. Maybe a few years ago that was harder. And still wear a dress and still be modest. And I just want to say, because you know nowadays leggings are popular. Ladies stopped wearing hosiery because it was hot. Now they wear leggings. I don't know if that's cooler, but it doesn't make sense to me as a guy. But anyway, but you maintain a feminine profile with the dress, but if your leggings are long and your dress is not, that violates what we teach at this church, that your dress, your skirt, should come below your knee, sitting or standing. And if there is a split, it should end where your dress is end and not somewhere north of that. 
Some I see are extreme north of that. Modesty is another topic that I will deal with. But, you know, you say, well, why, why in the Bible does God address some of these things to ladies more than men? Well, because typically ladies struggle with this more than men. And men have their own struggles, believe me. But we're talking about modesty. But I just want to pause just for a moment. You know, I'm 61 years old, so I've watched. I went to school in the 60s and 70s, graduated in 73. So most of the girls in my high school back then wore jeans. They were not modest. They looked like men's apparel. They were not modest in terms of not revealing the shape of their body. They were not modest in any biblical sense of the word. This is not something new to 2017. Well, we have grown up, many of you have grown up in a culture that changed before you, was, you were born, so it's just normal to you to see people dress like that. But for centuries, that was not the attire of women. That was not the attire of women in our Western culture. And because our culture has changed, it doesn't change the Bible, and it doesn't change the truth that we are a contrast culture. We are light in a dark world, and we should be careful whose voice we listen to. Amen? Now, I want to just give you a real simple answer for ladies. If somebody comes to you and says, I, you know, I notice that you always wear skirts or dresses, and that they're modest, they're long, and they're not tight and form-fitting, so you might as well be wearing spandex which was in my notes to say about the decline of our culture, it was, it was pants and now everywhere, if it's a store or the airport, it's like, pardon me, I know we're online and video, it's like underwear for public. There's really not much different. And now that's acceptable female attire, right? In our culture, I'm not talking about to God or in the church. But you see, there's a continual progression toward nudity and immodesty away from deportment that is like a Christian, modest woman or man. So if a, if a person comes to you, you ladies, and asks you the question, why do you wear dresses? And you can just politely say, for the same reason, why do you not wear pants? Why do you not wear pants? You can just say to them, I don't wear pants for the same reason that the men in our church don't wear dresses. We believe in gender distinction, and it has to be expressed in the way we present ourselves to the world. And it, there's scripture for this. We're not making this up. And gender bending and the blending of sexes is against the teaching of the Bible. And regardless of how far our culture drifts away from modesty, we will adhere to that because it's a biblical principle. Amen. Those distinctives matter to God. Now I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read... 16 verses in a row, and aren't you glad this wasn't my text? You had to stand for 16, you know, as our custom is. 
1 Corinthians 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, you can see this if your Bible is open there, your you know, tablet or phone or whatever, that the second half of this chapter is about communion, the Lord's Supper. And this is in the heart of the book of 1 Corinthians and what is a meaty doctrinal section. This is not a salutation at the beginning. This is not a passing comment or a benediction at the end of a book. You know, this is in the meat of this book. The same meat that talks about spiritual gifts and love and sexuality. This is in the heart of 1 Corinthians. And it shares space with Paul teaching on the Lord's Supper, communion, 11.1. Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Some people think the chapter broke at the wrong place. I think it is perfectly right. Paul is saying, I want you to follow my example because I am following Jesus and you should be going toward Him, following mentors in your life. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head, here's the subject, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. There is a, what we in the business world, I guess, call, or military world, there's a chain of command. It is God-ordained. That's not that popular in our culture either, by the way, but we're not going to rip it out of the Bible. We're going to pray for the courage to obey it, even when it's not easy. <clears throat> Verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one, as if she were shaven. <clears throat> For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Remember, taken out of his side. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. He got real spiritual, didn't he? Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judging yourselves, is it comely? that a woman pray unto God uncovered, doth not even nature itself, not the Old Testament law, nature, 
Does not nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame to him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem contentious, you want to reject this or argue about this. Paul said, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. So I want to break this down because it's a very important passage about authority, about gender distinction, about being the light of the world, about who we are, and obedience to biblical principles. There's a lot of stuff here. Follow me, Paul said, as I follow Christ, verse 1. Verse 2, he said, I want you to keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. Now, the two ordinances discussed in this chapter are women, or hair, men and women, and communion. But in other chapters of 1 Corinthians, he deals with other ordinances as well. If you're reading from a different translation than the King James, your Bible, instead of ordinance, may say tradition. In the original Greek, the word here is stronger than the tradition of maybe like a Christmas tree at Christmas, or an ornament you might use at a decoration, or a custom your family has. This is a weighty word, and I'm reading the King James for a couple of reasons, because of choices of words by other translations, that this is more true to the original, that this ordinance is, is something that God is asking of us. It is not Paul throwing out his opinion. Okay? just want to acknowledge, you know, there are other translations, and if you're reading that, you may be saying, aha, it's a tradition. Well, keep reading, and you'll see what tradition means in this passage. Now, he's going to talk to us about headship, and there is literal and figurative language here. The head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is the man, the head of Christ is God. We're not talking about your physical head, We're talking about authority. I think this is very obvious that I mentioned that this is talking about someone that is over you and there are ways that you demonstrate that you are under authority and that you are in authority. That is the purpose of this passage to teach headship, authority, submission, gender distinction, how it plays out in the world. Now, in verses 4 and 5, he talks about this covering. <clears throat> Men praying, prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. This does not mean that he discovers his cabeza in Spanish, his head, his cranium. It means he dis if a man prays with his head covered then he dishonors his head. If a woman prays or prophesies 
with her hair uncovered, she dishonors her head, who is her husband or father if she's not married, but specifically said the head that she has in her life. And Paul says, if a woman is going to pray uncovered, if she's going to dishonor her husband, then she ought to go ahead and shave her head because that's a shame for women and it's also a shame to disrespect the authority that God placed in your life. Are you with me? In verse 5. You're reading verse 5. That's what it says. You might as well shave your head because you've been dishonorable to God and you're disrespecting your husband. Now, if a man... Well, let's just go on in this verse. We're talking about honor and dishonor and how this plays out. Verse... I want to jump down to verse 15 and you'll see it in the notes on the screen rather. Because I want you to see what this covering is. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given her for A covering. So if you go back to the beginning of this chapter, and we're talking about a man covering his hair, and a woman uncovering her head, and we say, what is that about? Well, if you just read this, read the Bible, and I'm going to talk about some, what theologians say about this in a minute, but if you just read the Bible, if all you had was a Bible and you read verse 15, you would have no question what the covering was. It is hair. It is not a veil. Now, hair is a very conspicuous way that God uses to maintain gender identity. Like the way you wear apparel, clothing, that, you know, from 30 yards away or however good your eyes are, that, that's a Pentecostal woman right there. I, I can see her, she has a dress on and she has long hair and I, I, that's pretty conspicuous. Now, I'm not saying that as a doctrinal point, except that's pretty easy and observable. And it's scriptural. Now, God uses this physical distinction to identify men and women and to keep those sexes, male and female, separate and hair on a woman, long hair, as a sign of submission to her husband, her father, or God. Verse 6, all the way back to verse 6. For if the woman be not covered, let her be shorn. But if a woman, but if it is a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. Now Paul argues from reason as well as nature or creation about male and female. And he said, if or since it's a shame for a woman's hair to be cut or shaven, 
Then let her have long hair to show respect and honor. You can do a word study on this in the Greek, which is the language this was written in originally. And shorn is cut to clip without specifying how much is cut off and how much is left. And shaven is what you think of. It looks sort of like the top of my head right now, which was not on purpose. I think they call it male pattern baldness. <clears throat> so that's cutting the hair. And verse 7, For a man indeed ought, to, ought not to cover his head, and the covering is hair. For as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Now, we believe that the Bible is a God-breathed book. And God knows what he's saying and doing. He knows where what he's saying and doing is going and the effect it's going to have in people and in a culture to maintain a godly culture among people. He is interested in masculinity and femininity, and how it is expressed. I want to just pause to say that in the same way that I would not believe that every lady outside of oneness Pentecostalism who doesn't wear a dress is being rebellious to God. She doesn't know any better, perhaps. and that, Or a woman who cuts her hair, or a man who wears his hair long, is intentionally being rebellious to God Maybe he doesn't know any better. Maybe she doesn't know any better. In the same way that there are people who do not understand speaking in tongues, they do not understand a lot about the Bible, they've never read it, they've never been taught, they've never seen it. But I have an obligation because I see it and I know it, so I have to teach it or I will be like the Lord told Ezekiel that if I don't do my job and warn that your blood is on my hands. So I'm not teaching just for your soul. I'm teaching for my soul. But primarily I'm teaching for our church to represent Jesus Christ in this world and to not take our Bibles and rip out half a chapter and never talk about it ever, ever in the church. Just ask your friends, have your, has your pastor ever taught from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 16? In any way. Because there are some people that try to explain it away, they do a poor job of it, but at least wrestle with that text. Now, verses 8 through 12 talk about this, the, the relationship man to woman. You know, the woman is taken out of the man, but every man since then has been born of a woman. So a man can't be cocky and arrogant, and a woman cannot because she originally came from a man. So we, God made us interdependent, right? But he did give us gender roles. Now, verse 10. For this cause, 
ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Because of the angels. This symbol of authority. Verse 10. I believe it's on the screens. Thank you. Now, what could this possibly mean? I mean, we're talking about hair. And now we're talking about angels. It's like, what in the world does hair and angels have to do with one another? So let's just, let's just examine this a little bit. Which angels are Paul talking, is Paul talking about? Is Paul talking about good angels who are ministering spirits that God sent, according to Hebrews 1 and 14, to minister to those who are the heirs of salvation? Is he talking about good angels who are on our side? Maybe. Is he talking about bad angels that Jude 6 talks about who did not keep their first estate but left their own habitation and he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness and the great judgment of the great day. Now, they're in a heap of trouble. We got the good angels and we've got the bad angels and Paul doesn't say which angels. He just says, for this cause, a woman ought to have the symbol of power on her head because of the angels. And all I know is that's, well, I think I know a few things but, about this, but that's very spiritual and it's very powerful. Angels. If it's good angels, that makes sense to me. Because good angels said no to the revolt of Lucifer and they kept their first estate and they have the power of God in their life, if I can say life, because of their submission to authority in their life. So you should have power on your head because of the good angels that teach of the blessing of submitting to God's place. You see, Lucifer said, I'm going to ascend. I'm going to be like the Most High. I'm not staying in my place. I'm going to take over God's throne. But the good angel said, not us. We're not doing that. We know our place. We're staying right where God created us. The bad angels, Paul is talking about bad angels, that makes sense too. Because the bad angels ought to teach us what rebellion will bring in your life. So if he's talking about the bad angels who left their first estate and have eternal torment in their future, that makes sense to me too. Because if you don't follow God's teaching and you're not under authority, then you have now associated yourself with the devil. That's why Samuel could say to Saul that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. It is against God. So I really think that Paul could have been talking about the good angels 
and the bad angels. If he would have only wanted you to know about the blessing of being good and submitted, he would have said, don't forget the good angels. Or if he was wanting you to only know of the consequences of rebellion, the bad angels. But he says angels because both categories teach us about the privilege of living under God's authority in our lives. Look at this verse again. For this cause, because of divine creation and order, the woman's taken out of the man. She was made for him to complete him, to be a helper comparable to him. But in order of creation... Who came first? It wasn't the chicken or the egg. It was Adam and then Eve. And I know that if I was a lady, that when we talked about modesty and hair and submission, that might be a little tough to deal with, except there's so much Scripture, and if you've been here very long, and Father Zay is coming that I don't cut our men any slack about their responsibilities to love and lead and serve their families. And the Bible doesn't cut men any slack at all. So don't think that the Bible is an unbalanced book. It is perfectly balanced, God-inspired. For this cause of the woman to have power, a symbol of power, on her head because of the angels. The good ones, I believe. The bad ones, I believe. Both teach us something that we really need to know. And if you're a man, there's power in being under authority. If you're a woman, there's power in being under authority. Remember the centurion who told Jesus, I am a man under authority, and because I'm under authority, I'm in authority. And I can tell one servant to go, and he goes, and another one to come, and he comes. I'm under authority, but I am also in authority. So when you're under authority, you're in authority. Now, now there, there is nothing magical. There's nothing magical about saying that because I have, I'm a lady, if, if I was a lady, and I've, my hair is uncut, that there is magical power in that. There's not magical power in that. But there is power in submitting to God. Now there are stories, and one very familiar here to us, of Sister Dina Hayes. And I share this as a testimony, not as a principle. She and her husband are missionaries to Chile. When she was a missionary to another country, she was a, her, her daughter was diagnosed with cancer. I think she was two years of age. <clears throat> Dina Hayes was not raised in a Pentecostal, oneness Pentecostal or apostolic church. She came to God as a teenager. Shane, I believe, won her to the Lord, her husband, they were working together. Dina had cut her hair her whole life. But she saw this in the Bible. It was taught in her church. And she believed it and obeyed it. And now several years later, Dina 
Hayes is a missionary, and she has got a daughter with cancer. And she says to the Lord, Lord, your word says that there is power on my head because of the angels. So I'm going to believe you today. Dina said, and this is written in an article that she produced for the United Pentecostal Church. She took her hair down. She laid it on her child. She prayed over her. And in the process of a short amount of time, God healed that little girl. She's a teenager now. God healed her. Now, I want to be careful with this because it doesn't mean that if you've got a need that you can let down your hair and somebody's going to be healed. But it, so it doesn't mean that it's magic. But it means something. And it meant something as a point of faith for Dina. It meant something for Paul to say that a woman ought to have power on her head because of the angels. That may translate into divine protection. It might translate into healing. It certainly translates into salvation and the blessing of God. But nonetheless, whatever, however it plays out for you, if you did what Dina did and no one was healed because of that or you didn't feel like a special prayer was answered, do not discount what God will do in your life when you are a person who is under authority. Amen. Now let's go to verses 13 through 15. And let me just pause to say this. We teach the essentiality of baptism in water by immersion in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, not an outward sign of an inward grace, but for the remissions of sin, just like the Bible says. But we don't believe that this water is holy. And when you go down in the water, it's, it's just water. It's the water doesn't save you. Obedience saves you. We don't bottle it and send it home and say, because it was used to remit sins, that now it's holy water. It's just water. But obedience to the Word of God brings the blessing of God. And that's why I told Dina's story, because it is true, it did happen, and God honors His Word. Alright, verse 13. Judging yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray to God uncovered, doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. Now, a woman needs a covering according to 1 Corinthians 11. In the presence of God. A man, these verses say, should not have long hair. It's a shame to him. For a woman, it's her glory. And no place in this passage, as I mentioned earlier, is the word veil or is there any implication of a veil mentioned. Now, I want to talk about this because if you read this and stuff on the internet, you may read this. Well, in the city of Corinth, they'll try to take 1 Corinthians 11 and say that this, is a, this was a local problem in Corinth because in Corinth 
there is a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. It was a sensual thing. Corinth was on this isthmus, and it was a seaport city, and it was a pretty wicked city. And there was this temple there, and historically there were a thousand temple prostitutes. You'll read that. And that these women, they say, shave their heads. And that Paul was trying to teach these Corinthian women that they needed to wear a veil so they wouldn't look like those temple prostitutes. Well, there's a very clear historical problem with this. That Corinth was a Grecian city. It was destroyed in 146 B.C., with this temple. It was not rebuilt until 46 BC, a long time before Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. Julius Caesar rebuilt Corinth 44 BC, 44 BC. It had no temple to Aphrodite. It was not a Grecian oriented city, it was a Roman city. Seat settled by freedmen doesn't mean there wasn't any kind of immorality in a seaport city, but there is no historical correlation between why Paul would write this and temple prostitutes and shaved heads. I have actually read it before in commentaries and thought it was accurate, but I ran across something and I've cross-referenced this with several non-biblical, non-Pentecostal sources, they're historical sources, that what I just said is true. And before I ever realized this, I, I've said this for years, where did we believe that Paul was talking about veils? He doesn't say a veil. He doesn't imply a veil. He tells us in this passage that hair was given you for a covering. He doesn't say a veil was given you for a covering. So how long is long? Well, Paul said if you cut it, shave it. So long is as long as it grows. That's what 1 Corinthians 11 teaches that if you cut it or shear it, if it's shorn, that it should be shaven, because that is a shame. And by the way, historically it's possible that Jewish women wore veils, not for religious purposes. The Mishnah, which came in about 200 AD, talks about women wearing this ornamentation. Nowhere is it taught in Judaism as a, a, raw, a rule or a commandment. Uh, but Grecian women and Roman women were not necessarily known from old drawings as wearing veils. And the women that Paul is writing to would not be primarily Jewish women. They are Gentile women. So the custom in the city, temple or not, is not about veils. Just thought I would throw that in too. Now, men... He said should have short hair. And I know this is where holiness may get messy. But Atlanta West Pentecostal Church, men, we say, off your ears, off your collar, 
looked like a man. And, you know, I, I listened to a tape one time by a former United Pentecostal preacher. And he was teaching on bearable and unbearable yokes. And he told the women in the church, I heard him teaching this. I know this person. He's no longer apostolic. So, so lost his way, by the way. And he said, now, women, it's okay for you to cut your hair. Because he was saying that that long hair, uncut hair, is legalism. And then these are the next words out of his mouth. But some of you are getting it too short. Now, if that's not legalism, what is legalism? The Bible is a very wise book. Verse 16. But if any man seemed to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Now, the NIV says we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. The New Living Translation says we have no other custom than this, and neither do God's other churches. The NASB says we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. I just want to say this. Paul closed this passage by saying, if you don't see this, if you don't believe this, if you want to argue with this letter that I'm sending to you Christians in Corinth, you Jesus followers, I just want to let you know that this is not a little matter that has to do with Corinth. He said this is something that none of the churches argue with. We all do this. This is universal to the churches. This kind of said this is just the way it is. In Corinth, in Jerusalem, in Rome, in Antioch, and in Atlanta. Would you please stand? Brother Jury and I communicated this morning and I shared with him uh, what I shared with you and I knew he's in seminary right now, graduate school and he sent me a, a symposium paper, a theological paper written by Dr. David Norris, quite possibly the smartest person I know and a theologian and a doctor of theology and it was a very powerful paper with all the original words and you know, it's just very good reinforcement of what the Bible teaches and what I believe already. But at the end, he's, he's appealing and saying, you know, this is not just a custom. This is a Bible teaching that we must transfer to the next generation. It's not something that we're trying to just pound in or beat in or demand of people. Because we recognize now, we live in a culture where this is uncommon. What I just taught, what the Bible just said through teaching, is not common. You know, so he kind of made a little story at the end. There's a little girl asking her daddy, Daddy, why, why don't women wear dresses? Well, maybe they've never been taught that. Daddy, why, why do women not have long 
on cat hair. Well, maybe they've never been taught that. But you know, our job is not to judge them. Our job is to obey Jesus Christ and be grateful for what we understand about the Scripture. Because every one of us need to have the power of God in our lives that comes from the approval of God and our submission to Him. Whether we are male or female, we should be following Jesus. Amen? Before we come to pray, let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Holy Word. And I'm asking, Lord, to let your doctrine distill like dew tonight. That it would settle in our hearts and in our minds. And maybe folks, Lord, that have never heard this teaching before, that they would have an open mind to truth. That they would search your word and they would be prayerful, Lord. That you would communicate to them in a way, Lord, that would give them understanding and clarity. And Lord, the intention of your word and my intention tonight is not to polarize people who are coming to you and drive them away by truth. For we believe in the power of truth to change our lives that day by day we can become more like you. And I pray for your word to have its perfect work. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to say one more thing before we gather to pray. We have so many new people in our church family. And as a pastor, my, my view toward someone who's new, toward something, someone that's heard this for 20 years is totally different. And I just want to tell you, if you're coming toward God, whether you see this tonight or not, keep coming, keep praying. Let your heart be open to God. We're never going to run you off because you didn't embrace this. It might limit your ministry, but it won't limit our love for you and our welcoming to you into this church family.